Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to go back just to read uh, one verse of today's text. It says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Just that much. We are in the second week of our message series going through the emails, that's what I call them, because they're really kind of short little letters that Jesus wrote to a variety of churches. He knew exactly what each church needed, and so he wrote something that would fit their current situation. Last week, you may recall, we started in Ephesus, a city that, uh, by all accounts, was an absolutely wonderful church. I mean, it, it had everything going for it. Its calendar was absolutely packed with good stuff. They had some of the best pastors you could ever have in the history of their church. But God said, this I hold against you. You've lost your first love. And I think we probably asked or talked about last week, is it possible for a church to be so busy that Jesus is not part of that church? And of course, the answer is yes. Now, if you can see Ephesus up here on the map, if you travel, whoop, go back to the map, uh, you see where Ephesus is, there's a little number one by it. If you go about 40 miles uh, north of Ephesus, you come to a natural harbor that was home to the city of Smyrna. It's got a little number two by it, and you'll also see, you know, back, you look at it, whoop, back, go back, stay there, I'll tell you when. I'm getting excited here. Uh, you see in Ephesus, remember the temple to Diana, and now you're going to see a temple again up here by Smyrna. We'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, today, this city of Smyrna is called Izmir. Uh, it is a leading city in the modern-day country of Turkey. But because of its location and its beauty, Smyrna was known as the ornament of Asia, or like the pearl of Asia. And over time, a number of Jews had migrated from Jerusalem up over to what we call Asia Minor, became a very important part of the business system in Smyrna. They were there and they bought and sold goods bound for Rome, going to the west, or going to Persia to the east. Now, what you need to know is that in 26 AD, there was a competition to determine which city would win the right to build a temple for Caesar worship. Now you go to the next picture. Okay. And this is at least an artist's depiction of what that temple looked like. It's a very fancy temple. You can see the temple kind of sits in the background in what looks like a football field or something that people mistakenly put stuff down the middle of. But actually what this was was for chariot racing or where they would sometimes have their other games out there. And, but it was built and dedicated to Tiberius Caesar. And so what they have here in this town was an interesting mix of paganism, all kinds of, because of a bunch of hills, there was like a temple to a different kind of a god on almost every hill, but dominating it was this temple built to honor the Roman emperor. Now, if you lived in Smyrna back in the day, uh, once a year, all loyal citizens of that city would publicly declare, Caesar is Lord. Here is the rubbing point. Because no Christian would be able to do that. It would be like if in America, from the beginning of time, that if every year on a certain date, 
everybody had to stand up and swear uh, their allegiance to the president and say, so-and-so is Lord. So the believers found themselves in a very unpopular situation. They were continually being criticized. Uh, to live in Smyrna meant you were in a hotbed of Caesar worship and pagan sacrifice. This put Christians at a real distinct disadvantage. Now, I don't know if you paid a whole lot of attention. I hope you did when Kevin read the lesson today. But there was nothing bad said about it. You may remember last week, but this I hold against you. You've lost your first love. Nothing like that here about Smyrna. In fact, Smyrna is only one of two out of these seven churches for which the Lord has no words of rebuke. The other one, just we'll get to it later, is the city of Philadelphia. Not the one in Pennsylvania, but the one that was up here in Turkey. Now, the silence of our Lord here is striking when you consider his harsh words for all of these other churches. And it's not because Jesus felt bad for them. It's just that there was a deeper reality going on here. Here is a church where their suffering had actually made them stronger. It had stripped them of everything except for Jesus himself. And, I mean, this was a church that was obviously in big trouble. Their enemies surrounding them clearly had the upper hand. And seeing this beleaguered group of believers in Smyrna, Jesus had nothing but good things to say. In fact, this email, as we go on to the next slide, tells us something about this church. And it also tells us something more about our Lord. And these are the words this morning that I want to encourage you with because I know that there are some of you here today that probably feel like you've been going through tough times or you're looking for tough times that are going to be coming the days ahead. You've been kind of beaten up, you've been battered, and everything kind of seems like it stinks. That's why the message is called, When Life Goes Bad. What can we learn from Jesus' words to this church that could apply to us? Well, the very first thing you see is that Jesus knows your trouble. Guess what? You don't need to say in a prayer, Oh Lord, I'm facing this situation. And, and Jesus goes, what? 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 When did that happen? When did that happen? Somebody snuck one by me. Never happens. Jesus says, I know your afflictions. Interesting little word. The word afflictions in the original language, doesn't mean ordinary troubles of life. He's not saying, oh, come on, John, I know, you're, I know you've got problems. Everybody's got problems. That's not what he's saying. The word afflictions was often used to describe a man who had been crushed by a boulder. That's a little bit different than, oh, you've got problems? No, this, this is when the sky falls down. This is when all hope is lost. This is when... Darkness surrounds you, and the enemy is creeping in. That's what Jesus is saying. You're in really deep trouble here. You are literally crushed by what's going on in your life. Now, when I read that, I think of the suffering believers out there today. It helps me put my life in perspective. I, I remember a couple of months back when this happened where I was sick and I had the flu. And I got a phone call one evening from a friend of ours, prayer partners at a previous church. And the, and the phone call was, Hi, Barry, this is John. How are you doing? 
And I said, well, John, I got the flu. And John says, I'm in the hospital. I had a stroke. (laughs) My flu suddenly did not seem nearly as important. You know, in the same way here, I think sometimes I'm suffering some afflictions. But then I've got to remember that there are brave Christians today who are suffering attacks, for example, by Hindu mobs in India. We have helped build three churches in India. Uh, We know that of some of the churches that were built in the last number of years, Hindus attacked them, burned the churches to the ground, drove the Christians away. This happens all the time. Not long ago, a, a Christian church in Nigeria, where I preached before, was burned to the ground. Uh, people there were hacked to death by fanatical Muslims. This stuff happens every day. It's been happening since the beginning of time. But guess what? Jesus knows all about it. And if Jesus knows the big stuff, you can, you, you can, you can bet your bottom dollar he knows all the little stuff. There's nothing in your life that escapes him. That's good news. Here's the second thing. Jesus knows your poverty. I don't know what you thought before when Kevin read it. I know your poverty, yet you're rich. Now, these words are literal. These are not metaphorical. I mean, Christians in Smyrna evidently came from the lowest levels of the economic ladder. If they once had been very rich in worldly goods, that day had long since passed. No doubt many of these Christians, because of their faith, had lost their jobs in these trade guilds because they would not stand up and say, Caesar is Lord. So to these poverty-stricken Christians, Jesus says, but you're rich. Is he mocking them? Well, it all depends on how we value time versus eternity. If this life is all that matters, then Jesus' words are a bunch of pious nonsense. I mean, what good is it to say you're rich to people who are starving? But when you think about it, think about it this way. No man who knows Jesus is ever truly poor. And no man without Jesus is ever truly rich. Now... When I was writing this message a number of weeks ago, I had an iPhone laying on my desk. A few feet away, I had an Apple iPad. And around the world, there are millions of people each and every day who download millions of songs from iTunes, which I had done earlier that day. When we're all done with our project, we save all that stuff on the iCloud. We update our Facebook page. We update our Twitter account, all by using what? Apple technology. Even the screens that are run today, the pictures you see up here, are being run by a MacBook that sits up in the balcony. Where did all this stuff come from? Well, all of it stems from the creative mind of one man, Steve Jobs, who, after his death, left behind a multi billion dollar fortune. And even while uh, 
confessing my debt to him. I mean, I like my phone, I like my, I like my iPad, I like to download stuff, all of that kind of stuff. Let me re- remind you of the phrase I just used. He left it all behind. All those Mac computers don't matter now in his life. All those iPhones and iPods and iPads and iClouds, they do him no good. All that money, that multi-billion dollar fortune he amassed, is no longer his. Stephen Jobs has passed from this life where he was revered into another realm where he needs to answer to God who thought him up and who made him, who created him. Now, I'm not going to make any pronouncements on his eternal destiny. I really don't know. But whatever happened to him and wherever he is, it has nothing to do with that great wealth that he somehow managed to accumulate on this earth. If he thought that he was going to disappear someday into nothingness, he was dead wrong. If he thought he could somehow achieve nirvana, he was dead wrong. If he thought that his life on earth was the only life there is, he was dead wrong. I mean, his earthly wealth can no longer protect him. Now think about it. I mean, how foolish we are sometimes to think that the little bit of stuff that we accumulate in life somehow matters in eternity. I mean, do you think God who made this universe is impressed by a 75-foot yacht? Do you think God who knit people together in their mother's womb is blown away by a mansion or two or three? Do you think God who created such a variety of plants and animals is actually impressed with a Mercedes or a BMW? I say, friends, God knows your poverty. He knows your riches, too. He sees your faith lived out in hard times. He knows the prayers that you pray when you are crying tears of pain. He hears your desperate cries for help. Now, oddly enough, those hated Christians in Smyrna were the richest people in town. You know, they're the richest people in town. Now, years ago, I heard it put this way. You'll never know if Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And when Jesus is all you have, then you will discover that Jesus is all you need. Now, there's a lot of people in this world who have a hard time figuring that one out. But I want to suggest to you that because these people in Smyrna were so poor, they learned what it meant that Jesus is really all you need. That's why Jesus said, but you're rich. You're rich in grace. You're rich in love. You're rich in forgiveness. You're rich in Jesus. I mean, no man is poor who learns to trust on Christ alone. The lesson we all need to learn. I know way too many people who call themselves Christians. How do I say this nicely? I can't, really. But it just galls me sometimes that people who profess to be Christians only realize their poverty and their richness when they're in trouble. 
The rest of the time, they could care less about Jesus. But when they're in deep weed, oh, come on, Jesus, come on and help me, where are you? Same place he was when you were in trouble and you didn't care. It was the same place he was when things were going good for you and you never bothered to say thank you. Oh, I'll tell you, that ticks me off. I could preach about that all day, but I won't. Okay, Tommy, I'll, I'll stop right there. Okay. Let's go to the third thing. Jesus knows your enemies. Jesus knows your enemies. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and they're not. He says, oh, look at that. They're the synagogue of Satan. That's a rather interesting description of a church. The synagogue of Satan. This applies to those Jews in Smyrna who had joined forces with the pagans to accuse the Christians of treason against Rome. It reminds me today of of Christians who basically have joined the other side, but still show up in church on Sundays. You don't believe that? Open up your Facebook page sometime. You have to wonder. You really have to wonder. But see, in taking sides against the church of Jesus, they were taking sides against Jesus himself. And all I know is your arms are way too short to box with God. He will win every time. And see, because Christians did not worship idols, because they didn't fall into all of the other garbage in this world, but instead worshiped God who is invisible, they were accused of being atheists. And because people said they actually got together normally and regularly to have the body and blood of Jesus, they were called cannibals. And because Christians were despised and marginalized, they seemed like a virus that needed to be removed from Smyrna. And they were being attacked by these so-called Jews. They weren't really Jews at all. They were Jews in name only. And this ought to remind us something about religion. I, I hate that word religion. You know, religion is spelled B-O. Not interested in a religion. See, religion blinds people to their need for God because it makes them think that somehow they can do something to earn their salvation. If I'm good enough, Jesus will love me. If I say my prayers often enough, Jesus will love me. See, we need to be about a relationship, which is spelled how? D-O-N-E. It's done. Jesus done it. It's all done. How do people think they're going to earn their salvation today? Oh, man. There are some people who have a religion that's based on superstition. You know, they've they got to do a certain number of things so God doesn't get mad at them. They put their trust in some outside sort of factor to get to heaven. Some people, someday, are going to be sadly disappointed. Other people, uh, their salvation is what I would call inherited religion. You know how that one goes? Oh, Daddy was an elder and Mommy was a Sunday school teacher, therefore I'm in. I told some people one time, you could be baptized in the ocean every day until every fish knew you by first name. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to heaven. Like the old thing says, sitting in McDonald's does not make you a Big Mac. Sitting in church does not make you a Christian, let alone a Lutheran one. 
See, people sometimes think we get this by osmosis if I sit in the same place long enough, you know, or I inherit it like I inherited the color of my eyes. It doesn't work that way. Nobody can believe for you. You have to believe for yourself if you want to get to heaven. I mean, never be surprised, though. Never be surprised when religious people don't like you. Ah, man. Been there, done that. I mean, folks, they hated Jesus. They will hate you, too. And look what they did to him. They crucified him. Jesus knows about these people. That's why, number four, he says, do not fear. I love this little verse here. It says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. And there's a lot in that verse. I mean, first, our Lord has perfect knowledge of everything that's going to happen. I mean, surprises don't surprise him. The Lord, it also, we kind of learn from that verse that sometimes the Lord allows the devil to attack us and attack us pretty severely. But it also teaches us that our sufferings are limited by the Lord. He tells the church severe persecution is going to last how long? Ten days. Now, some of you might read that and go, well, <laughs> ten days? Doesn't seem so bad. But friends, you see how you would feel after you've been fired from your job, beaten senseless, your house plundered, your wife sexually abused, and your children physically attacked. Would it seem so small then? It seemed like a pretty big deal, I think. Now, I know that in any given church, there are some of you who have been in the furnace of affliction for longer than ten days. For some of you, it probably seems like you've been carrying a heavy load for 10 years. For some of you, it may even seem like a lifetime. And I'll be honest with you this, that I cannot explain why some people seem to suffer so much more than other people. Now, while it's true that the Bible says, into every life a little rain must fall, I think you probably know people that seem to have a perpetual monsoon beating down on them. I've thought about this over the years, but I have concluded that all the speculations as to why some people appear to suffer more than other people are nothing but speculations. And speculations don't help much. I'd rather just move on and say, okay, that's just the way it is. Some people seem to suffer more than other people, but instead I'm going to rest my soul on something else. We can, in being tempted beyond, it says we're not going to be, able to be tempted beyond that which we're able to bear. God knows your limits in the suffering that you're facing. He knows what you can endure, and it says he will give you what you can bear. I mean, just think about it this way. If Jesus said you're going to suffer for ten days, no one can make it last eleven. It won't end early, but it won't go on any longer. The time limit on whatever is testing or trying your faith has been already determined by the Lord. That's why he says, fear not. I love these t-shirts. I see it mostly wearing kids that say, no fear. I've scared a few of them. I scared one little kid one day in the mall. I said, what's that mean? I told it. It says, no fear. What's the matter with you? 
No fear. I mean, Christians ought to wear t-shirts that say no fear. And when somebody says, what's that all about? I'd say, it's, it's real simple. God knows what he's doing. And he's doing it. God's going to accomplish in my life what God wants to accomplish in my life. What do I have to worry about? Number five, Jesus says, be faithful. Many of you have heard this verse any number of times. We often hear this at the time of a funeral. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says in the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. One more important fact, friends, that we should not miss. Jesus never, ever, anywhere, promises to remove the trials of life. He never says to the church at Smyrna, just believe in me and everything will be better. In other words, Jesus was no prosperity gospel preacher. That's another heresy that has infected the church around the world. It's created a generation of Christians who are materialistic and worldly and spiritually anemic. Because some people have no theology of suffering, they're not ready when suffering comes into their life. And because they believe in such trite things as your best life now, they have no strength to face the struggles when they actually do come. I mean, Jesus has never said, friends, believe in me and I'll give you an easy life. He says, be faithful unto death. And then you want to know where your prosperity comes in? It's called the crown of life. I mean, no doubt, many of the believers in Smyrna paid the ultimate price for their faith. Having followed Jesus in life, they now were going to follow him in death. And it's against that backdrop that we see the importance of Christ's title for himself here in verse 8. He said, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, if you will, who died and came to life. I mean, these are extremes he's talking about. The first and the last, death and life. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but Jesus is the Lord of extremes. The Lord of extremes. He's there, well, he wasn't just there at the beginning, he was there before the beginning. And Jesus will be there at the end and after the end. Because Jesus conquered death, death will not conquer us. Max Lucado, great Christian writer, suffering from cancer, he was asked not long ago what death means to him as a Christian. This is what he wrote. In heaven we'll remember the day we died with the same fondness we remember graduation day. Isn't that interesting? In heaven we'll remember the day we died with the same fondness we remember graduation day. How many of you have ever heard of Polycarp? A couple of you, okay. A lot of Christians today don't know this guy named Polycarp, and this doesn't mean a guy caught many fish. That was his real name, Polycarp. Apologize for that bad pun. But early believers knew all about him because he was one of the very first, very well-known martyrs of the Christian faith. You study church history, you got Stephen. We did that today in Bible class. We're going through the book of Acts. But Polycarp is one of the next ones. 
And in his youth, in his young age, he was actually a disciple of the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. For many years, he served as the Bishop of Smyrna. But during the wave of persecution in A.D. 155, a mob of people demanded that he be put to death. Roman officials actually tried to save his life by offering him repeated chances to deny his faith in Jesus. But every time they said, look, if you just deny your faith in Jesus, we'll let you go, he refused. When he was given one last chance to save his life, this is what he said. I quote, For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? So the soldiers took him to burn him at the stake. Now, when they took him there, they were going to nail him to that stake, kind of like a crucifixion. But Polycarp would have none of it. This is what is recorded that Polycarp said. He said, leave me as I am. He who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. And as the flames surrounded him, as he stood there, he was heard to pray this prayer. I thank you, O Lord, that you have deemed me worthy this day and this hour to take up the cross of Christ with so many witnesses. Now, when I read stuff like that, I say to myself, where do you get men like that? Where are the polycarps of our day? But then I stop and think, you know, God's got polycarps all over this world. There's countless numbers of men and women who do not bow the knee to Baal, who will not swear their allegiance to Caesar, who will not give up their Christian faith and will not return to Islam. They would rather die than to surrender what Jesus has given them. I mean, of such men and women, the world is really not worthy. See, that goes back to that little phrase, the second death. It says that people who hang in there don't need to worry about the second death. See, the second death cannot hurt the man and woman who has already been saved by Jesus Christ. An evangelist who told me one time that he would be told me that he had been told that he would be killed if he didn't stop preaching, he said, you can't threaten me into heaven. I mean, think about that. You can't threaten me into heaven. Now, few of us are probably ever going to be called upon to do what Polycarp did. For most of us, the sufferings that we are going to endure in this life are going to be less dramatic. The pressures against us as Christians are going to be far more subtle. And the temptations to go to the other side are going to be harder to spot. But yet the call of Jesus remains the same to every last one of you. Fear not. Be faithful. I say that because heaven is waiting for us. That's what's down the road in every life of every person who's ever lived who claims the name of Jesus. 
Death can come into our life at any time. But it cannot take us take away what God has given us. I mean, the world can give fame and take it away. I mean, there have been people who have won American Idol or Dancing with the Stars or some other dopey show like that. Ten years, nobody knows that fame is here one day and gone the next. And so be it. We're rich today, we're poor tomorrow. We have a job and then we don't have a job. We're healthy then cancer is something else strikes. Or we have a happy family and everything suddenly seems to fall apart. Our, our friends say they love us and suddenly they're gone. But friends, to those who stand strong in the midst of trials, the best is yet to come. We will receive the crown of life and not have to face the second death of hell. So be encouraged. That's the word for the day. Be encouraged. I mean, buckle up your chin strap and get in the game. Don't run from the troubles of life. You are richer than you think. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And oh, by the way, heaven is just around the corner. Let's stand and join.